Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Gordon Hahn, who has quite a lengthy biography. He's a senior researcher at the Center for Terrorism and Intelligence Studies, an expert analyst at Core Analytics, and an analyst at Geostrategic Forecasting Corporation. He's the author of many books, some forthcoming, as well as many publications, and has taught at many universities. Dr. Hahn, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, how are you doing these days? Doing well, and thank you very much for the invitation. All right. Yeah. Great to have you here. And so I thought we would cover essentially two themes on this mm -hmm. podcast, which are broad, that of the Russia West uh, tinderbox, as you put it, which is now mm -hmm. supplanted by the East West tinderbox or Cold War, which includes China, and what you call the authoritarianization of America or the new American communal liberal fascism. So mm -hmm. st starting with the geopolitical tinderbox, over the past year, we've seen hotspots in the Russia West uh, Tinderbox flare up in the Donbass, Black Sea, Ukraine, mm -hmm. Nord Sea 2, NATO expansion and war games, Belarus, and, and on and on it goes. And, you know, I, I have to reiterate the essays that you publish on your website are, I think, masterful. They're lengthy, yet they don't waste or mince words, and you lay out objectively what is really happening. So I know there's much to cover, but could you give us kind of the key drivers of the Russia West conflict and what you might expect for the future? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I've, I've, for years I've been saying that the main driver is um, NATO expansion, uh, and that's coupled with EU expansion. So if, if you look at the, you know, the history of um, NATO expansion, EU expansion, you'll see that approximately eight years after any country signs a, uh, uh, an association agreement, which is the first step to joining the EU, eight years from that point, um, that country becomes a member of NATO. And so if we look at the uh, on average, uh, not, uh, not every country is the same, but on average. Um, in the case of Ukraine, uh, they were about to sign an association agreement when the Maidan revolt occurred. Um, and so that's surely, surely that's a, a um, symptom of, uh, of the conflict, Russia and, and um, really the expansion of NATO west to Russia's border uh, was was bound to lead to a, a flashpoint either in Ukraine and, and or Belarus. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing um, parallel with the standoff in Ukraine. We're seeing uh, Western support in uh, attempt to um, Western support for an attempt to remove Lukashenko from power. Uh, in both cases, Ukraine and Belarus, I don't. I'm not con con entirely convinced um, that the everything that occurred, um, for example, in, on the Maidan, on the Maidan, the overthrow of Yanukovych, was planned or involved by you know Western secret services. Rather, uh, it's more of a it's more of a, a hit and miss proposition of destabilizing regimes and expecting, uh, according to the really the Western ideology nowadays, is that history is sort of like the old Marxist Leninism that history is is headed in the direction of uh, uh, capitalist, capitalism and democracy ruling everywhere. And by the way, I'm, per I'm, I'm a person who supports capitalism and, and democracy. Um, but I don't believe it's a good idea to be um, machinating or using force to uh, achieve that. Um, and I think that uh, by, by, by pushing the issue, by pushing the issue, we essentially create the unnecessary conflict in Ukraine. Um, in, in Belarus, the situation basically is similar, right? You don't see um, what basically the process is, is kind of similar to the way the Soviet Union got mixed up in Afghanistan. So you, um, 
you support the various forces, you bring people over to the United States, or in that case, the Soviet Union, to be educated in, in your particular ideology. They return. They begin to organize. You, you send funds to help them organize. And at some point, there'll be a tipping point, um, and they will be able, one way or another, to uh, create a situation in which it's possible that the previous regime, of uh, whatever it may be, uh, can be removed and replaced by a pro-Western, or in the Afghan case, a pro-Soviet regime. And um, this is essentially what they did in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I think in Belarus, we're seeing probably less of a slightly less of a robust involvement by the West, but never, nevertheless, it's uh, there. It's clear that the West is supporting the um, what's the name of the, the internet TV channel that's been driving everything. Next, 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 and so forth and so on. So, this is clearly the strategy: is to create uh, an element within the country that wants to change things, and hopefully, will bring about a crisis that then can be. Uh, parlayed into uh, seizure of power by uh, friends, and the Russians call you know they put this in quotation marks all the time in, in you know the, the 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 color revolution policy, and it's actually mentioned in the new, in the new uh, national security strategy just published by Russia last last week, and um, a lot of emphasis is put on, on on this and the threat to Russian culture and traditional values, uh, as they put it. Um, so. Um, that's one thing is one driver is NATO expansion and then co coupled with it is EU's expansion. That's really, uh, I think, the main driver. Uh, coupled with that is, uh, on the other side, is Russia is trying to um, create an economic union that would cover a large part of the former uh, Soviet Union. And Ukraine was really um, the key uh, brick in that idea, in that um and and so when uh, the United States and well Europe essentially proposed the EU membership with NATO lurking there in the background, uh, NATO uh, Putin in, in, intervened and offered a fifteen um, what was a fifteen billion dollar uh, package uh, over years to basically entice Yanukovych not to sign the, the agreement. So you have basically this sort of security dilemma, right? You have Russia's Russia trying to create this sort of. Um, economic union, which, you know, at some point they may try to parlay into a more robust political union. Um, but certainly they want to have economic uh, leverage so that they can main their maintain their hegemony over the um, central Eurasian region. And uh, the United States is pushing against that by trying to expand NATO. And there's no, as of now, no compromise has been, <laughs> been found. And there's been very little attempt uh, on either side, but especially I think the Western side to uh, to find a compromise, uh, largely because the West considers itself since the end of the Cold War to be um, to have uh, an advantage in power, and so that it can basically basically maneuver itself one way in, in or the other into achieving its goals without making any compromises with Russia. Of course, that does not sit well with Moscow, and this is not just an issue that you know that it's not a personalist issue of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Having this policy, almost any Russian leader would would be adopting um, a policy of uh, opposition to NATO. Well, we only need to look back at the pro-democracy, the Yeltsin administration, and his very harsh statement, statements against the idea of NATO ex ex expansion, also, and the breakdown in relations actually under Yeltsin uh, over the situation in Serbia, Serbia, which was re related to um, the issue of NATO expansion. So. 
it's really a security dilemma. You know, there are other factors too. Uh, Russia and the United States don't have a close hist- a history of close relationships. There, there's no um, uh, vital economic interests to maintain the, the relationship or to solve uh, uh, major disputes uh, because economic trade is, uh, is, is fairly limited between the two countries. Uh, there's no real cultural uh, connection between the, the two countries, and what what cultural connection exists is actually a <laughs> is actually a, a negative in terms of uh, creating a, a smooth relationship because my, you have many people who are former uh, Russian or Soviet citizens and who have de- who defected to the United States and tend to be um, anti-Russian. So there's really very little to uh, <laughs> um, create a a uh, relationship of comedy right now. And until NATO expansion is called off, um, I think the Russians would tolerate something like EU expansion and perhaps uh, even into Ukraine, um, but certainly not when NATO expansion is learning, lurking in the background. Then it just creates too much of a you know, existential threat, so to speak. Um, well, right. So when would things you, you feel like I guess start to get hot. We saw like some flare-ups in the Dunbass recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did you foresee things just kind of going on uh, as they are now, or or do you foresee at some point, you know, the the West trying to include by force? Well, they're saying now that Ukraine, you know, won't be able to join NATO for another ten or fifteen years. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you th- do you see some hard line being crossed in the near future? Um, well, NATO expansion is is it's it's, it's never going to move off the agenda if, if Western policy remains as it is. And first of all, the Russians have a longer term perspective on things like that. Um, they, Fifteen years is not a short time. Um, it's not a long time, I should say. It's not a long time, and uh, for, for for Russians. And the other issue is is that thing if things change uh, internally in um, in Ukraine, if for example. There was a massive reduction in, say, corruption over the next five years, and um, uh, Kiev was managed to uh, subdue um, any reluctance in what used to be called uh, uh, Malorussi in the southeastern part of uh, Ukraine towards the imposition of West of Western Ukraine's will on on them, and that means uh, things like. Uh, no Russian schools, no Russian language schools, um, perhaps even no speaking Russian in public uh, is on the agenda. Um, things of this sort, if they were managed to impose their will and change the uh, attitudes in southeastern um, Ukraine, and then somehow overcome the Donbass issue, Ukraine would become um, a, a member of NATO. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt in my mind. That's one of the reasons why uh, Putin is uh, very happy to keep the situation in Donbass uh, Donbas percolating. And one of the stipulations uh, for an agreement is that Ukraine be an independent state, that is a, a neutral state. Um, Russia will not allow Donbass to be reincorporated fully into Ukraine again, unless there's a constitutional amendment clause in the Ukrainian constitution that declares it a neutral state that will not enter into any military blocks. Um, then the issue of economic blocks 
perhaps could be um, resolved through talks. Uh, some kind of joint uh, economic cooperation with Ukraine between the EU and the Eurasian, Russia's Eurasian Union, something like that. Uh, or maybe the Russia would just uh, uh, be satisfied with a ban on uh, NATO, NATO membership and be willing to um, compete for uh, Ukraine uh, with the uh, with the uh, European Union. It's and and hope hope that you know there's some kind of a substantial change in the domestic orientation of Ukraine. Uh, highly un unlikely under the scenario the scenario I uh, I painted, but still nonetheless, uh, it's certainly uh, possible. Um, so that means the situation is going to fester and it's going to fester um, for a long time until <laughs> the West gives up the idea of NATO expansion. And as long as that situation festers. It's extremely dangerous and could explode at any time because Kiev has limited control of, over the ultranationalist elements, many of which have penetrated into the military and the security forces or have support from elements within the military and the security forces. Uh, and they could, um, for various reasons, domestic political situation, nationalism, ultranationalism, decide to foment some kind of um, reignition of the uh, war in uh, Donbass. And from there, all bets are, bets are off. Then you could have Russia getting involved again uh, by sending in uh, uh, small numbers of troops, uh, disguised not as troops, but as uh, uh, rebels. You would have uh, the rebels, of course, and those who support them would, would rise up and you could have a very, very ugly situation. Poles who support Ukrainian um, uh, nationalism or Ukrainians in Poland and other places, people from the Baltics might come and support. That would then uh, possibly uh, lead to some kind of a response, perhaps by NATO or R Russia responding to that, then leading to a response by NATO. So it's a it's a tinderbox that could blow up at any moment. Uh, you know, just look at the um, several uh, naval incidents that have that have occurred in the in the Black Sea, um, look at the uh, situation when Ukraine shut off the water supply into Crimea. There are all sorts of ways that this thing can unravel very quickly. And it's um, it behooves uh, the West and the United States to, the West and the Russia to uh, come to some kind of a conclusion. Unfortunately, I don't think that's possible as long as the United States is not involved, and that brings another that that raises another issue because the Russians, unless they see see a radical change in the position of the United States regarding um, Donbas and particularly NATO expansion, uh, Russia is going to want to stick with the Normandy um, the Minsk two two agreement and the Normandy four uh, format, and that excludes the United States participation unless the United States decides to change its policy, but maintains distance and, and and puts pressure on France and Germany to follow a policy that it supports with, you know, some kind of declaration about the possibility, at least, of a neutral uh, Ukraine uh, being written into the Constitution. Other than that, the situation is going to fester and probably sooner or later it's going <laughs> to it's going to spin out of control, whether it turns into a major war between the West and Russia is another uh, question. But uh, and that's impossible to predict. All right, uh, to get, and to get your quick thought on 
you know, what's happening now in Central Asia. We have the U.S. Mm -hmm. withdrawing from uh, Afghanistan. I think you mentioned uh, in one of your articles um, the funneling of uh, jihadists. We know, you know, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Western countries as well mm -hmm. have supported uh, jihadists in Syria and elsewhere. And mm -hmm. I, I, I've had the feeling Russia has been worrying about you know, the, the, the West and the Middle Eastern countries fund destabilizing Central Asia. And there's mm -hmm. also this uh, idea of China now moving into Afghanistan, the Taliban talking about asking China to help reconstruction. So mm -hmm. what do you see most important? Uh, it seems Central Asia will be, be and the stands will be becoming more important now. What, what do you mm -hmm. see uh, there? Yeah, I can't. Uh, it looks like what's going to probably happen is the Taliban is going to return to power. I, d I don't see Kabul having the wherewithal to withstand the Taliban because, you know, uh, putting aside the, the international jihadists who are used by the Taliban to increase their, you know, force potential, um, uh, the Taliban are the Taliban are a indigenous um, movement that's very uh, rooted in uh, the southern and western parts, uh, eastern parts of. Um, uh, Afghanistan. So it's very unlikely that uh, they're going to be able to, uh, the, the regime, the Kabul regime is going to be able to withstand the Taliban for very long. That means the Taliban comes back to po power. I don't see Russia and China. Mo Russia will certainly not want to get involved in militarily in Afghanistan again. So that leaves it up to China. China would be the last um, uh, potential um, intervener militarily into into the Afghan situation to prevent the Taliban from coming to power. But given what I said earlier about the Taliban not really being, they're not an international jihadi organization. They, they don't present an international, assuming that they're willing to cooperate once they seize power in preventing international jihadists from embedding themselves back into Afghanistan and causing trouble. Uh, uh, and that is something I think the Russians and the Chinese can um, get them to make a commitment to by offering economic assistance and so forth. So what, what the outcome is likely to be, at least for the near to midterm, is that China and Russia will cut a deal with the Taliban. And that means China and to some extent Russia will have, uh, have uh, the largest say in what goes on in uh, Afghanistan and they'll have a new, uh, a new foothold in South and uh, Central Asia, which they can use you know, to uh, influence uh, Pakistan and also even in, even Iran and certainly Central Asia. So uh, that's how I see the situation playing out, whether it plays out that way. Uh, but that looks like the, 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 uh, the most likely outcome right now. So basically, the United States has, by um, trying to engage in nation building to such a degree, to such a degree that it did when it moved into Af Afghanistan as basically and the West and NATO. Um, they basically sort of cut themselves out of uh, uh, Afghan politics and life, and it's now going to be a it's going to be a brick in the new uh, Silk Road that China is building across southern Eurasia and through Eurasia. Eurasia. And yeah, to get your thought then on, on China, I just wanted to quote some of your writings. Uh, you write quote. 
as Russia is becoming less a soft authoritarian and a more middle-range authoritarian regime, it has deepened its partnership with post-totalitarian, hard authoritarian China. Russia saw NATO and turned east, sharpening the global divide and east-west tensions. Moscow has increased, increasingly hitched its wagon to rising China, which is becoming the superpower of Eurasia and Asia and a major player everywhere. China, rather than falling in power after defeat to the West, is rising in power in the hope of defeating the West by becoming the first uh, new non-Western antipod in a bilaterally structured system that will be short-lived and then the global hegemon. The new Western Russia Cold War is being overshadowed by the Sino-West Cold War in which Moscow plays Robin to Beijing's uh, Batman, end mm -hmm. quote. So, I mean, just your general view of China today. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, China, I think <laughs> there's no doubt that China is a rising, a rising power. Um, China is, is um, happy to part partner with Russia because Russia provides um, cover in the UN uh, when China wants to vote against um, something uh, that the West proposes. They have Russia to partnership with, and so they're not isolated. And, that, and that's true about the general geostrategic situation. Uh, China is not facing... Um, uh, the West alone—it's got a major power on the Russia on the on the West doorstep that that it's allied with. Um, it's ex it's economic expansion through the Silk Road. I think um, probably for the next decade or two will be limited to economic expansion, excluding um, perhaps an attempt to seize Taiwan, for example. But certainly on this Eurasian mainland, I think their 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 attempt is to build this huge massive economic and uh, transportation infrastructure infrastructure in which they play the lead role. Uh, and they'll divvy out uh, supporting roles to Russia first and other countries to the extent they want to um, participate. Uh, and to the extent that the United States and the West is opposed to China's, uh, China, opposed to what Russia is doing and opposed to the partnership, um, they're going to be people playing in a limited role. So, you're basically we're basically going to see the formation of a bifurcated world, a, a world split into two camps between uh, the the, the Chinese-led uh, coalition of states, predominant in Eurasia, and um, uh, sort of uh, if you talk about the old geopolitical strategy, right? The uh, the island in the sea, and and the sea will be dominated, the world sea will be dominated by um, less and less though by uh, the West and the United States across the Atlantic. Uh, but again, China is going to be a naval power. Uh, it already is in the Southeast Asian Sea and, and other places it's going to be a naval power. Russia, to some extent, is a world naval power. Um, and uh, so I, I foresee, basically, again, that's why I call it the East-West Cold, Cold War. It's no longer, you know, the new Cold War that they put in parentheses regarding Russia and the West with the, the central fo focus being... Um, Ukraine, it's much larger. It's a global, uh, a global uh, cold war uh, that hopefully will remain cold. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so, too. Uh, to get your quick thought, something you briefly mentioned in one of your articles, um, Moscow and Beijing issued the same line regarding the possibility of U.S. responsibility for the emergence of COVID-19 and the mm -hmm. pandemic. You were, you know, the, the West has been accusing the East of biological warfare, uh, in this sense, the, the East was referring to U.S. bio-warfare labs uh, mm -hmm. in U Ukraine. And so mm -hmm. um, the most popular podcast 
you know, back in January of 2020, I interviewed Francis Boyle, the author of the Bioweapons Act. And that, inter- that interview went viral and got promptly deleted by uh, YouTube. But, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the nature of the so-called pandemic and then and how Moscow and Beijing view it? Mm-hmm. My guess is that, that the Chinese, the Chinese mistake, there was a le- accidental leak at the Wuhan lab. Um, uh, and uh, that was one of the, the, the attempt to sort of cover up and probably doubt about how to deal with it, similar to the way. Uh, the the late Soviet Union under Gorbachev didn't really know how to react to Chernobyl, uh, and as a result, they, they didn't want to close down travel inside uh, China. They didn't want to close down international travel immediately because they didn't want to tip their hand as to what was going on or what was happening, and uh, that created that helped the thing uh, to spread somewhat more rapidly. And they basically. Uh, there's no way out there. It's highly unlikely that the Chinese are going to uh, admit that they uh, that they are the they were the source of the problem. Um, that principally in in the age of disinformation and propaganda, there's no reason to admit anything you do wrong because <laughs> there's so much information and so much propaganda and so many opinions out there that uh, most parties, uh, if they're cynical enough, are just better off continuing to lie. So. They're going to probably just continue to deny, deny that it was accidental. And one way to do that is to issue propaganda blaming the United States. I remember at one point they were saying a group of uh, American military or, or, or intelligence had, vis- had visited China and they brought it in. Um, it's indicative that Russia and China, two days apart, gave sent signals that they believed that the United States was somehow to blame for it. So uh, they're working together on, on propaganda. Uh, efforts, you know, hopefully uh, the Chinese, uh, hopefully over time that the pandemic will uh, will subside and in the West and everywhere else, there'll be a more rational approach to, to dealing with it rather than shutting down the, the world economy and people, it will move into, a, over time, it'll move into, a you know, a 10th line on the uh, agenda of the news every day and it won't be that uh, important of an issue that China has to, to fret about. So, you know, I don't see I don't see the COVID issue as being you know uh, really central in in divide. Uh, it's more the way it's dealt with is more a symptom of this uh, East West uh, Cold War than than um, some kind of a cause or even even a significant aggravating factor. I don't see it being as being as, as being a significant ag- aggravating factor. I think there it's more geostrategic and geopolitical conflict that. An economic uh, conflict that drives drives All right. things. All right. Um, so you were mentioning before uh, color revolutions that typically the West uses against uh, the East, and uh, so I wanted to shift gears, kind of talk about the authoritarianization uh, of America. So uh, you wrote some fascinating pieces on color revolutions coming home to roost in the West, in Washington. Uh, indeed, last fall before the elections, I interviewed I, um, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who worked with Ronald Reagan, and Roberts correct, correctly predicted a color revolution would remove uh, Trump. It has mm-hmm. been reported recently that undercover FBI agents or informants were involved in the January 6th so-called Capitol mm-hmm. riot. So we're seeing these these kinds of things, these signs uh, everywhere. You've basically laid out how America has become an 
authoritarian one-party state run mm -hmm. by the Democrats. Uh, in your article on the authoritarianization of America, you say, when a nation rejects its, its history, it collapses. And, and we're seeing that happen now in America. They're rewriting history just across the board, schools, statues, media, uh, everywhere. You describe the current regime as fascism combined with the new Marxism-Leninism. Mm -hmm. You write that the new liberals, leftists, and big tech have melded with the military-industrial complex and oligarchic globalists to form an intolerant, self-righteous, liberal leftist cabal opposed to social traditionalism and the traditional American values of constitutionalism, republicanism, and liberty, uh, end quote. So, you know, what has become of our America? Yeah, basically, I'm, I, I, think, I don't think that we're there yet. I, I don't consider the regime um, to be communo-fascist or authoritarian yet. They're, they're, they're trying to move in the direction of uh, a one-party state, de facto one-party state. The Republican Party and other parties would be allowed to exist. Essentially, they would create a system very similar to Putin's regime that we castigate all the time, right? Where the a regime where the, the ruling party um, wins all the necessary elections, they might let the opposition win a few elections in Tambov or somewhere in Arkansas, right? <laughs> if you're talking about the states. Uh, but generally speaking, it'll be a one-party uh, one party state. Um, that was the plan. I don't, they haven't fulfilled the plan yet. Um, um, and I think it had this, this plan has roots going back to the Obama, Obama administration. They, they thought Clinton would win and they would be able to much more gradually begin to implement the kinds of policies we're seeing today with Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and all whites are genetically um, uh, racist and introducing this stuff into the uh, grammar schools and high schools and um, because, uh, and one of the reasons I say that I don't think they've achieved it is because one of their key building blocks, uh, building blocks to achieving, um, that regime was HR one, which is the, was the first uh, house resolution submitted by the Biden administration to Congress. And that was to legalize all the methods that were used to, uh, engage in massive corruption and or steal the 2016 election. It's hard to tell whether all the massive corruption uh, brought them the sufficient numbers to steal the election. Um, but they probably came close that they didn't actually steal it. Um, uh, they wanted to legalize all those, you know, mail-in balloting, um, long timelines for, for mail-in balloting, um, uh, open, uh, basically non-existent rules for, for registration and to registering to vote. Um, ballot harvesting and all these things, which are predominantly used by Democrats in order to uh, create this one party state. This is how they, they, they committed the massive fraud in the 2016 election. Um, unfortunately for them, um, Senator Manchin and uh, it was just Senator Manchin was enough to um, vote against that. And uh, as a result, he's a Democrat, Senator Manchin from Pennsylvania. And as a result, that did not go through. So now uh, they may try to introduce elements of that piecemeal, but it's highly likely that they're going to be able to override Manchin. So now the key is the next, uh, the congressional elections that come up in 2022. Now with uh, the Democrats in power in Washington, rather than say Trump, um, they may, may be able to leverage even more uh, <laughs> a voter fraud and so forth and steal some key, key elections in in various uh, states in order to win Senate majorities, uh, Senate majority, and then win a House majority, 
and then they'll have a open an open road to creating creating that one party state. So the key uh, barrier is now the 2022 congressional and senate elections, and um, so we're not there yet. When I when I when I talk about communal fascism, I mean the, I mean the ideology of some within the Biden administration, some of the appointees to the cabinet, who I mentioned a couple I've mentioned in a couple of articles. Um, uh, and the ideology of Black Lives Matter and uh, Antifa. And this actually is nothing, you know, they call it cultural Marxism or the neo-Marxism, uh, the new Marxism. Um, but it's actually not really anything new because you go back and look at the 1917, if you go back and look at uh, Lenin's policy during the revolutionary era, um, one of his tactics was to combine um, support of the working class not just with the peasantry, but with um, national minorities who were opposed to the um, Russian-dominated, uh, dominated, um, ethnic Russian-dominated uh, Romanov dynasty. So this is nothing new to use. Um, now, of course, he didn't engage. There was no, there was no ideology of, um, uh, well, there was something close to that of accusing you know, Russians of being genetically racist, but certainly the idea that all these other small peoples, the Armenians, the uh, the Jews the, and all these groups were victims of um, uh, Russian so chauvinism, which to an extent was true. Uh, in this case, in the United States, it's not true. There is no structural racism in the United States. Uh, racism is largely an individual characteristic, not a group characteristic. It not largely is an individual characteristic. It has nothing to do with genes. It has nothing to do with the American Constitution. Um, and in my opinion, there's actually uh, per capita, there is more um, racism amongst the minority, pop minority populations in the United States. That is amongst the Afri African-American population, perhaps amongst the uh, Hispanic population, and um, perhaps even more sexism amongst the feminists than amongst the males these days in the United States. And all you need to do is look at the education system, look at the university system. I talk about the education system, I mean, the first and secondary uh, levels and the university system, you look what's beginning to be introduced, the critical race theory into now uh, the military, into uh, Raytheon Corporation, into all the schools in California, it's going to become mandatory. Articles being published in uh, the psych psychologies, I, I believe it's their chief um, uh, scholarly, their main scholarly journal, uh, openly saying that, ra that, that, that white people are genetically racist. Uh, you know, in a scholarly journal. I mean, this is the, this is the kind of thing you would have seen in 1936 uh, uh, Nazi Germany. And not even. <laughs> I don't think the Nazis were publishing many scholarly articles, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Uh, um, uh, now maybe they may have allies who were doing so, right? Um, so it's this is the actually, <laughs> there's nothing really here new. This is a, this is, this is just, um, this is uh, human uh, self-aggrandizement and propensity to, to need someone to hate, uh, lust for power. That's all. This is nothing new. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I growing up in the U.S., I never even thought about race and, and these things. And I had friends, people from all walks, ethnicities, and, and races. And I myself even became, you know, a, a Mexican, which you know, me, being a Mexican is considered a, a minority in the U.S. So mm -hmm. I'm a Mexican citizen now, and it's like I, I, well, I'm not even thinking about these things mm -hmm. until they they're bringing this up every day obsessively. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's quite an, an interesting phenomenon that you have a, an administration now that's claiming that we have a. Um, 
uh, a structurally institutionally racist regime, a regime at the same time Biden has served for the last 30 years. Kamala Harris has, has served for the last uh, few years in the, in the Senate. At the same time, a regime that basically left the borders open. And what happened? Minorities decided to come to this terribly racist regime. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people from Latin America ran to the border to enter the state with an institutionally structuralist racist regime. How is that? Can someone explain that to me? Where are all the um, uh, African-American people who are defectors moving out of the United States because of racism? The United States just got done having an Amer a, 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 their first African-American president, although, in fact, he's actually half white, half black. So there was actually an element of racism in calling him a black president. Racists on the part of the, of the liberals and leftists and uh, black leadership and Hispanic leadership who decided to call him black when, in fact, he's as much white as he is black. <laughs> so it's filled with all sorts of hypocrisy and uh, uh, contradictions and ironies that are, you know, the stuff for uh, contemporary Dostoevsky. And as as they left the the border open, I decided to to leave myself. Um, but uh, as well, I was reading today. Wall Street Journal published uh, an article discussing the problems this is creating. For example, in the U.S. Navy, that they're they're pushing this diversity training, yet they're not proficient. You know, the Navy men in in their job. Uh, you know what they need to do on on the ship and that. So it's weakening the, the you know the U.S. military structure. But I also wanted to get your thoughts on. In your articles, you're talking about U.S. the role of USAID and and Soros, mm -hmm. and so these are the same people: USAID, Soros, mm -hmm. National Endowment. Uh, you know this global elite structure financing mm -hmm. these color revolutions uh, in foreign countries, and now they're doing it domestically in the U.S., where, as you mentioned, financing BLM, Marxist activists, mm -hmm. all these NGOs, associations, which are ushering in, you know, I would call it a French Jacobin Revolution 2.0. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, what's the game here? What's the ultimate aim? Because uh, you say it's the promotion of transnational governance and subversion of national sovereignty and to force mm -hmm. acceptance of a far leftist agenda or, or ideology. And, you know, this seems kind of related to the Great Reset or stakeholder right. capitalism. And mm -hmm. you call it techno activism or I'll call it mm -hmm. technocracy. Uh, you know, it, it's like I, they're trying to do this to every nation on, on the planet. You know, mm -hmm. how, what what's the bigger picture as you see it? Like, is it world domination? You know, what are your thoughts on the Great Reset? I think it's uh, it's it's an attempt to establish a some form of greater world governance in, that goes beyond, say, the United Nations, which largely deals with trying to address either social economic problems or manage geo uh, political relations between the various member states. Now they want to do something more. They want to have a government that will have a world government that will have um, direct sovereignty over everyone on the planet um, so that the, the states, the, the member states, say, of the UN, will become a secondary player, you know, a, a, a level, say, in a federative system in which um, the constituent parts of a federative system don't have all that much power, right? That's basically will be the, uh, the goal. Uh, and uh, people like Soros and others are supporting um, this kind of a policy. And this is one of the reasons why um, I think, uh, you know, and I know I don't want to say this as a fan. I'm not a fan of Putin, 
I would prefer to, prefer to see a much more democratic leader in, in Russia than Putin. But I think Putin um, smelled this out early on. Um, and he understood that this was a threat to Russian sovereignty. Um, and the, um, the ideological connection between Trump and Putin largely rests on that. I think Trump also understood that this was the problem, um, that this had penetrated the Democratic Party and that Soros and others were basically taking over the Democratic uh, Party and taking over uh, grassroots movements in the United States tied to the Democratic Party, uh, major media in the United States, which along with the universities is the main driver of all this. Um, and Trump was a major threat. And this is why the, administ the Obama administration did all it could. They trumped up these false charges about a Trump uh, Putin, um, Trump being a Putin of a uh, Trump, a uh, puppet of Putin, and um, and so forth and so on, so on, in order to weaken Trump, possibly have him removed, two attempts to impeach him, um, and various other things, things that went that happened uh, during the uh, Obama administration, were the sort of first salvo. Uh, they succeeded in removing, uh, having Trump removed, um, and so now they want to consolidate. They don't want to see a Trump 2.0. They do not want to see a Trump 2.0 because once Trump's removed, then the only obstacles really are uh, Russia and China. And they can be um, painted as bad actors, which in many cases, they, in which in which they are. Right. You don't want, don't want to have the, the, the state that's the main uh, champion of republicanism, republicanism and human rights uh, being opposed to their global agenda. Because. It's through um, their agenda of uh, human rights and so forth and so on that they um, they open the road to infiltrate infiltrate rather uh, various states and then undermine their their power in relation to the global uh, movement. So the United States has basically become <laughs> became one of the major uh, obstacles, along with uh, China and Russia, during uh, the Trump administration, and Trump had to be removed. And so we'll see what happens. There probably uh, we 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 will see a lot of funny business going on in the twenty two um, election, uh, connected with Soros and a lot of these characters and um, Facebook and so forth and so on. I, I kind of see you know total hypocrisy and contradiction. You know the, the propaganda tells us that this you know world government or global governance structure is going to be all you know unicorns and roses and and, and daisies and a utopia. Meanwhile, as you described, the tactics that they are using to build it right now are totalitarian. So if what they're doing now to build it is totalitarian, I mean, how do you get to some peaceful, democratic, you know, global government? It's going, I view that it will be, you know, it, if, if they would achieve it, it would be like a totalitarian world government and then there'd be nowhere to run. Um, it's very likely that it would turn out to be an authoritarian regime because the level of power that people people who would be in such a system would have or or potentially have would incline them to try to make the uh, the, the highest rung of power the world the global level to be as power, powerful as possible uh, the temptation would simply be too great given <laughs> given the <laughs> the uh, the character of human nature right it would just be too too great so um, i think it's it's extremely dangerous and it's even more dangerous now when they've been shown themselves willing to take on a country that uh, was basically the beacon um, of democracy around the world for all its faults and all its mistakes since the end of the Cold War. Um, uh, still, especially amongst uh, the con constitutionalist and 
conservative part of the uh, um, American populace uh, was a bulwark for the protection of republicanism and so forth and, and human rights. And so now to be um, basically attacking them through Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the Democratic uh, uh, Party would-be one-party state regime, um, I think, yeah, you're right. It's an indication of where things are likely to go if they get in power. And to get your thoughts on, uh, you've also talked about this, the repression of journalists, media control and censorship, uh, the narrative control or propaganda today is is ridiculous. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't believe I'm witnessing, you know, given what we had when I was growing up in the U.S. and what we have now, it's just I'm still trying to come to terms to, with what has happened. Um, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I feel we've literally gone full Soviet, full Orwell. You know, every day I'm seeing countless deplatformings uh, and accounts and content deletions of innocent material. It's, it's mind boggling. Yesterday, mm -hmm. some random high school in, in Illinois had its uh, meeting with parents deleted from YouTube because the parents were demanding that uh, the school stops masking their children. And, you know, YouTube, YouTube takes it upon itself to just, you know, censor that thought. And, you know, they're working with the corporations and pharmaceuticals. Uh, and so beyond that, you say that this liberal postmodern communism has created a fake reality and that the leftist media bubble and journalists are actors and producers of this installed reality. So perhaps you, your thoughts on media censorship and this kind of AI, big tech, uh, oligarchic technocracy today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're basically you know, the, the, the globalist uh, movement and, and, and leadership is basically again, playing on this ambiguous position of, of um, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and so forth in the media um, uh, field. You know, on the one hand, they want to have it that um, uh, they're an open platform and therefore they shouldn't be subject to certain restrictions and so forth. And on the other hand, they're actually engaging in um, censorship. Um, so, uh, the problem here is that, um, you know, people, Facebook and Zuckerberg and all these people are tightly linked into people like Soros. Soros, a couple of years ago, uh, basically threatened that the, the Zuckerberg be removed as chairman of Facebook because he didn't want to institute these kinds of um, uh, filters and so forth against uh, Trump and so forth and so on. So, um even in this case, someone like Zuckerberg appears not to be uh, an independent character. Uh, and, um, you know, it really is an, an Orwellian uh, situation. But we see, we're beginning to see, right, that we're, there's, a, there's a backlash coming from certain um, conservative governors in the United States where they're taking on Facebook, uh, the governor of Florida, DeSantis, and um, Governor Abbott in Texas. Uh, and there is still a wide range of, um, you know, internet media, conservative and constitutionalist internet media uh, that has large has large um, viewerships. People like uh, Glenn Beck and so forth have, you know, 20 million uh, listeners. Um, so uh, they still have a long way to go. And I think uh, at some point, probably during a Harris administration, not during the Biden administration, but in two or four years. Um, the Harris administration will probably try to shut down people like uh, Beck and Ben Shapiro and uh, Mark Levine and all these people on some um, 
on some pretext of uh, for uh, regarding internet uh, neutrality and so forth and so on. But um, that will then probably be the spark that will lead to um, some open, massive public protest on the parts of their followers, and that could be the spark for a potential civil war. So there's still a long way to go. The it's the the battle is is far from over, and uh, the, the people who stand for republicanism and independence and and liberty and so forth, I think, uh, still have quite a few cards to play. Uh, and uh, in the end, I think there's a very good chance that they'll win, at least in the United States. And if they win in the United States, that probably should have a ripple effect in Europe, and um, maybe at the same time. Since Europe and the United States will so be so occupied with their internal situation, maybe at the same time they'll come to some kind of a, a realization that um, NATO expansion is probably not the best way to um, deal with the Russians. Uh, and hopefully they, they, there can be some kind of a rapprochement between Russia and the West, and that might uh, make China think uh, twice about doing things like seizing Taiwan and being over aggressive uh, about uh, uh, other policies in the Southeast Asia Sea or along the, so uh, the Silk Road once it's once it's developed. So, um, you know, that's probably one scenario for a way out of this uh, this East West Cold War. And uh, but I think really the answer is is either in, is, isn't probably in, is in the United States. It's the only way out, and um, hopefully uh, that will happen. Um, it's uh, right now. I'd say the correlation of uh, correlation of forces is probably um, fifty fifty, right? Uh, depending on how you you parse uh, things, but. So you're you're a bit optimistic, which which is good. We we need more of that. Um, I have my my final question with some quotations. It's a bit lengthy about what what you've been mentioning. Like you you just outlined a, a positive scenario where it could go in a positive direction, but kind of you've been talking about this uh, World War Three scenario. So you write that mm -hmm. quote: "The de-democratization of America, should it occur, uh, will undermine democratizing and democratic regimes worldwide and make war at the cleft points between East and West more, not less likely. The U.S. will int intensify its new Cold War with Russia, along with China's rise in the tightening Sino-Russian strategic partnership. This will make a third world war more likely. Um, and you also, end quote, you reiterate what my recent guest uh, Scott Ritter said, the former UN weapons inspector in Iraq, he said mm -hmm. the Biden administration has sort of brought us back to the start uh, of the Cold War with their politics. And you've mm -hmm. said that, quote, the new Cold War is global. We're back to the future of the late 1960s, end quote. So, you know, and you also talk the, the gr growing imminence of the threat of war in Ukraine and in the South China Sea is a situation that is reminiscent of the tangle of geostrategic alliances that ignited both previous world wars. Uh, the dream of democratic peace, even among the democracies, is dead. A chimera uh, now of now powerful giants are roaming the earth, pushing and shoving each other um, for control over the rest, and major wars can begin as before. The situation somewhat resembles the run-up to World War II, during which Western businesses fed the rise of Nazi Germany, and the U.S. concluded a formal treaty with um, Hitler. And now Western businesses are helping to build a powerful Chinese economic and technological uh, machine. And so, you know, what 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 would this World War III scenario 
look like you know when and and you know what does it all mean you you're hopeful in the near term that things can kind of turn around and and eu and, and washington can rethink their nato expansion and, and fix things mm -hmm. domestically but you know if that doesn't happen you know what's the alternative yeah you you made you, you made one uh, mistake when you read it I, it was the usr ussr's treaty with hitler not the us treaty with hitler. um uh, obviously so um yeah i think uh well basically i do think that that's what's happening right now you see you see us we're feeding the uh, the growing giant but i i i then again i also made another point in that in the same article and i think that this is uh, an important one to make that china has its own vulner vulnerabilities um uh its economy is is very dependent on the U.S. economy, just as our economy is dependent on their economy. Though that's not necessarily an obstacle to conflict. Um, uh, and the other thing is that um, there is a significant portion of the population of China that would like to see far more uh, freedom. And we saw that break out uh, what thirty years ago, thirty years ago, almost now, more than actually thirty years ago, and. Uh, this is this means that China needs to get beyond that certain that uh, point that the Russia and many other former communist regimes uh, went, uh, and that is destroying the one-party dictatorship. Um, you know, again, we have you know the situation in in Russia in Putin's uh, Russia is not a one-party dictatorship; it's a one-party predominance, with lots of other parties um, allowed to operate and occasionally allowed to win. Elections in China have a completely different scenario, and um, once there's a push to try to remove that uh, one-party system, either to move to a fake uh, multi-party system, sort of something like that uh, exists in uh, uh, Russia, or the Biden people uh, the plan to plan for the United States, um, uh, or create an actual democracy. Uh, there can be some grave political instability that would un uh, you know throw off the uh, throw the uh, Chinese uh, car, railroad uh, 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 train off the tracks. So that's something that needs to be taken into account too. China doesn't um, necessarily um, isn't necessarily destined to become the world hegemon, although it's uh, it's uh, there, there's much potential and right now it's headed in in that direction by sheer by its side. Its economy is still very ineffective per capita it's not as strong as the united states it's by volume it is because of the population but per capita it's not as strong as the united states so china still has a way to go and um one cannot you know one can't uh, exclude the a scenario similar to that that occurred you know before the communists began to seize uh, full power across china in the 1920s you know when you have um you have basically warlord factionalism of some sort, and they have a, a dissolution of the state, and um, even uh, a civil war as a result of some uh, move against the one-party dictatorship. So, for example, in an economic crisis, in a world economic uh, depression, for example, something like that could be sparked, or resistance against some kind of a involvement in a war in China. So, um, say a war in the, a war with Taiwan. So um, China is not out of the <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination out of the imagination out of the woods yet. So that's another scenario scenario for getting getting out of this uh, getting off the road that we're now on. All right. Uh, do you have any final thought for us? Uh, well, 
not really. I would I would just urge people to um, <laughs> try to remain calm, read a lot, uh, use your uh, mind and not your uh, emotions. And, you know, wherever you can, try to explain to people, you know, the importance of having as much freedom as you can have. Now, that doesn't doesn't mean it has to go overboard to the to the to the to the, to the extent where there are no responsibilities um, and um, minorities can inflict some kind of some kind of radical point of view on on majorities. Uh, it mean it means you know having a set of institutions that that take into account um, uh, public opinion and create a representative government that reflects the public opinion. And that uh, change the, that leads to changes of power and rapid changes of um, people who sit in power. Final thought on that would be one crucial element of any kind of reawakening in the United States uh, would be uh, term limits. There has to be term limits because one of the big drivers of all this is uh, the corruption and people sitting in Congress for many, many years, which allows people like Soros and others to sink their teeth into them. And uh, then there's no way out. They want to stay in power. They have to whistle to their tune. And so I think that that's, that would be very important for the United States and also for other democracies, not to mention non-democracies, to have you know, some kind of uh, serious term limits and an end to the revolving door between business and um, uh, the, uh, the powers that be. Uh, where would be the best place for people to find you online? And is there any book or project uh, or website that we should know about in particular? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm on, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I left Twitter a while back. I've been thinking about leaving Facebook for now. I'm, I'm on Facebook. Um, I have my website, gordonhan.com, where I publish mostly articles about Russian and Eurasian uh, politics. I've been moving in a different direction lately, looking at cultural issues. And so I have, I have one new book coming out on the history of this isn't so much a cultural book, but it has some cultural elements in it. Um, a history of you of Russian um, Western relations that looks at um, the way in which uh, Western actions and influence um, helped create Russia and at the same time created a backlash within Russia, which is a foundation of this Russian Western uh, relationship I call Rus the Rus Russian the Russian dilemma. Uh, and then I'm writing, uh, writing a new book on something called uh, using the Russian. Right now, I'm, I would, I'm ho hoping to have a Russian word as the title of the book. It's called zealousness. Zealousness means essentially um, uh, whole, uh, wholeness. That is integrality or in integrity, but not in the sense of honesty, but in the sense of a unified whole. And in that book, I'm making an argument that, that there's a tendency in Russian culture that extends actually into political culture that seeks uh, unity and um, a trans transcendental uh, aspiration for absolutes. One of those absolutes is kind of unity and it, and it, and it emerges from the Orthodox um, religion that uh, gained a foothold in, in ancient Kievan Rus and then um, developed in Russia and then developed in Muscovite Russia and continued into Imperial, Imperial Russia. And my argument is that this sort of uh, modest zealousness that has orthodox roots has came with it a sort of universalist aspiration, the idea that Russians have always been very uh, concerned about the fate of the entire world, not just about uh, Russia. This has, this has roots in orthodoxy as well. The whole idea that someday uh, the whole world will be uh, Christian and uh, Christ will return and the whole world will be saved together. The whole idea of collective salvation in orthodoxy as opposed to individual salvation in Western Christianity. 
And along with that comes uh, certain communalist or collectivist um, practices that existed in Imperial Russia and ancient Russia, and then transmuted in the Soviet period into Soviet collectivism. Also universalism, tra universalism transmuted into the Soviet period in terms of proletarian internationalism. Um, and then the final uh, aspect, the final form of selflessness is what I call sol solidarity or solidarism or, or unity. And this is a quest for national, um, maximizing of national, political, cultural, and social unity. And, and I argue that that is a result in some ways of the previous three forms of selflessness. And then I make, I try to caution, and I would caution others to, to not to take this as some kind of a predestination of authoritarianism in Russia by any means. Um, it, it creates a sort of predisposition in that um, there's a suspicion of pluralism. And that in itself was uh, generated in part, and this goes back to the previous book I mentioned, The Russian Dilemma, of Western intervention, Western involvement, Western meddling in Russian politics that goes back, goes back hundreds of years. Um, and I detail in the book, The Russian Dilemma. And so um, it's not a predetermination to authoritarianism or, to, or totalitarianism, but it, it leads to a tendency. And um, so basically, I look at the uh, Russian culture and political culture from the standpoint of that sort of strand in, in, in the culture. All right. I, I'll look forward, uh, and we, to these uh, uh, publications. Uh, uh, Dr. Han, I find your work very uh, unique and that uh, you're not the usual uh, academic and not so easy uh, to categorize, which is good, I think. And I'm really going to urge listeners to read his writings on Gordon Han. That's H-A-H-N.com. And I'll leave the links in the description and where, where you go into much more detail um, in those articles regarding what we've been talking about. And so thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hope to see you again. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.